Welcome to Waco Watch, the podcast. I am Dewana McCray, and I am here with Winston Partners, Danielle Williams, and Mike Thomasulu. So today we will discuss the final day of the VLSI technology versus Intel trial, which was or is before Judge Albright in Waco. So there is a lot to discuss from day five, um, starting with, you know, Intel's remaining witnesses in its case in chief to VLSI's rebuttal witnesses. So we have a lot to discuss today. Mike and Danielle, how are you both? Good, Dewana. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm doing great, Dewana. It's good to be here. Let's start the testimony of Greenwald. So Greenwald is a witness who, um, it's a holdover witness who was testifying on Friday and his testimony finished up today. Um, what was the remainder of the testimony? So the remainder of the testimony today, Dewana, focused on clarifying a few items from Friday's testimony. The prior art reference, Yona, had a programmable clock. And trying to clarify uh, Dr. Grunwald's understanding of Dr. Rodham's testimony. And Dr. Rodham is the Intel employee who uh, developed or participated in the development of Iona. They went through that piece. And then they also talked about Dr. Grunwald's use of shorthand or a shorthand phrase, specifically common clock, as his way of looking at two elements of claim 14 in the 749 patent. Just to put a, a finer point on whether there was any questioning on cross-exam that, that changed his infringement opinions, and of, of course, Dr. Grenwald said no. But it was a, a pretty quick, specific effort to, to clarify a couple of issues from, from Friday's testimony. Zenia, you, you mentioned that one of the topics or questions was whether or not Yona had a programmable clock. What was the response and answer to that? How, how was that clarified? So he was explaining his understanding of Dr. Rodham's testimony. He was suggesting that the Dr. Rodham's testimony that counsel was directing him to did not have the complete information. And he suggested that Dr. Rodham was confused about the, the questions and that if you looked at a different part in his testimony, that it made it clear that there was not a programmable clock. Switching gears to Intel's damages witness, that was the next witness that was, that was on the stand and testified today, Hans Houston. Um, what were the highlights from Mr. Houston's direct examination? So... It's an interesting choice for an expert. I, I don't think that he had been a testifying expert before. I, I, what he had been was a lifelong IBM guy. He was an engineer there for something like 20 years and then was IBM's chief of licensing. Uh, extensive licensing experience, had negotiated hundreds of real-world licenses, and that was sort of, sort of part of Intel's theme all along, real-world people, real-world evidence, real-world licenses. I think this was his first case testifying, um, and he made some points that were sort of in direct rebuttal to some of the, the, the sort of macro points that had been advanced by VLSI's witness. For, for instance, he said he always knew what patents covered what products. So if, the, if they were, you know, if IBM was licensing a 
uh, a product, uh, licensing a patent, uh, IBM knew, you know, what IBM products were covered by that patent and what the person who they thought needed the license, what which of those products were covered. So they really did know that stuff. That was sort of a direct response to the concept that the LSI had been advancing that, you know, Maybe Sigmatel and Freescale and NXP didn't really know whether these patents covered their products. So there was a motel analogy used, um, Danielle. Could could you explain to the listeners um, what what was that analogy and um, the purpose of the analogy? So Mr. Houston used a motel analogy to as the as a construct to deliver his his overall views on licensing and then the information around uh, the value of licenses so for example he identified that there would be a motel along a freeway where there would be lots of cars but maybe one or two would stop but most would go by. And then he contrasted that with the motel at a resort where there are lots of people there because it's somewhere where people want to go. And if you look at those two, then the resort is going to be the place where you have the higher price. And then as he went through the different stories of information that someone in his position looking at how to, how to license, buy, or sell patents, much like you would determine whether whether you would stay at the hotel or stay at one motel, stay at another motel, buy the motel. Uh, if you stayed at the motel, would you have would you be the only person staying at the motel, or would other people be able to stay at the motel uh, at different rates? Uh, a lot of the, the basic concepts around patents and patent licenses and transactions around patents uh, using the motel analogy make the transactions around patents more accessible. But then the next layer that he did is he took the different categories of information that he would look at, like prior sales of patents, prior comparable agreements, um, prior negotiations between the parties with regard to similar patents and prior agreements with third parties for similar patents and put and and put those in the context of the of the motel analogy. So if you're looking at comparable agreements, maybe as you're going down the freeway, there are three or four hotels around the same stretch. You stayed at one hotel, one motel, it was twenty five or thirty five dollars a night. And so you would expect a similar room and a similar motel to be about the same rate. Uh, so, so that's how he was he was talking about it. So, I mean, gen- generally speaking, um, I I understood what he was saying. Um, of course, uh, I I would hope that I would understand what he was saying, but I I also understood the accessibility of it. I would have loved to have seen his demonstratives uh, to see how he illustrated. Uh, the motel along the freeway, and then where all these where these different categories of information would would fall in there, and then sort of what his final his final slide looked like using this analogy. Danielle, what do you think of the analogy? Generally, generally speaking, I thought that it worked to convey uh, what may be seemingly uh, complicated patent transaction uh, topics. And uh, with the 
the theme that uh, that Intel has been going with the the real world evidence where they heard we're the ones who are presenting you with the the real world information. It may have done a good job uh, reinforcing that theme because you've got uh, a real world experience staying at a motel and uh, and then analogizing the real world uh, information around the patent agreements to those kinds of experiences. And so maybe maybe Intel was able to reinforce the fact that uh, Mr. Houston was um, was relying on uh, real world ag- agreements uh, as part of his analysis. What are the other highlights from Mr. Houston's direct examination? I think one highlight, Dewana, was the attack on the, the Sullivan hedonic regression model. And so, again, going back to Intel's sort of real-world, uh, you know, real-world solutions, real-world licenses, the, he asked if, um, as they asked Dr. Sullivan, he said, you know, had has Mr. Houston ever heard of this hedonic regression or ever heard of anyone using the hedonic uh, regression as part of a, method of negotiating an actual patent license and he said no he, he certainly hadn't and, and he reiterated that no one had ever used such a thing to um, negotiate a patent license at Sigmatel, at Freescale, at NXP or at Intel. Another highlight was he said you know had you ever heard of somebody um, you know, asking for billions of dollars you know and and he's for for one or two patents, and he said it's just nuts. It's crazy. It's never happened. So I, you know, if somebody somebody asked for that kind of money, it would be immediately rejected, and we would walk out. So those were, I think, a couple of additional takeaways that, that I think were meant to be something the jury could consume. Danielle, what were the key takeaways and highlights from the cross examination of Mr. Houston? Well, for me, it's uh, one of the things that Mr. Houston said on direct. It, that IBM had never uh, licensed or entered into a license agreement for a running royalty in the semiconductor space and during his during his tenure. And I, you know, never say never say never uh, because on cross examination, uh, the plaintiff found a 1997 agreement with JDS Uniphase that had been published in a uh, treatise called Drafting Technical Patent License Agreements. So the plaintiff went through that agreement with uh, with Mr. Houston, and under that, they did confirm that it was a running royalty of 1% per patent and up to 5% on the, on the sale of the products, and it was a, a semiconductor-related um, patent. And then they were all able to, to get Mr. Houston to concede that it's difficult to test uh, the accuracy of Mr. Houston's statement that he had never licensed uh, IBM's patents for a running royalty basis because most of the information is is confidential and not and not accessible uh, to to third parties and and he had to concede that right so I mean I, he couldn't he couldn't say 
say otherwise. So I don't think it's a ding on his credibility, but it's certainly something to take into consideration that we just have to take Mr. Houston's word for it, even though there was this one patent that they were able to find where it was a single patent where it was licensed for 1% and up to 5% of the revenue, and it was a semiconductor laser chip and not subject to the limitations that Mr. Houston had described on direct. So that one was a tough one, I thought, for Intel, because IBM has such an extensive licensing history, and not surprisingly, some of their licenses have been written about. And as was pointed out by VLSI over and over again, that a 1% royalty here is actually more than what VLSI is asking for. In other words, if you had applied a 1% royalty to the accused product sales, in this case, you would have got a bigger number than the $2.4 billion they're looking for. So that's certainly a challenge that was brought about by using an IBM licensing expert. And I don't know that it's something that could be avoided, but I think from Intel's perspective, they wanted to bring someone who had actually negotiated licenses and wanted to talk about probably one of their main points was you look at comparable licenses and you don't use a hedonic regression that you need to spend $500,000 to do. So, Danielle, did anything interesting happen on redirect? On redirect, I think a lot of what they covered was to be expected. The one area that bubbled up to me was around the comparable agreements. And so one of the issues between the two experts is that Mr. Houston has been able to identify 18 comparable agreements, but the plaintiff has not been able to find any comparable agreements at all. And so it was an opportunity for him to suggest that that seemed a little odd, that they wouldn't be able to find one comparable agreement over the hundreds of thousands of agreements that may exist around this kind of technology. Yeah, I think the last point on this witness I would make is on the redirect. They made the point that some of these higher value licenses that were introduced in the cross-examination of Mr. Houston covered thousands or at least hundreds of patents. And Mr. Houston said he's never heard of anything covering two patents for anything close to billions of dollars, never heard of such a thing. So after Mr. Houston testified, Intel rested its case in chief, and then VLSI brought in a rebuttal witness who had already testified, which is Mr. Conte. Mike, could you give us the highlights of Mr. Conte's rebuttal testimony? Yeah, sure, Duana. So I think Dr. Conte, he was the infringement expert, and he was also going to be the invalidity expert for VLSI. And his testimony was sort of traditional rebuttal testimony that you would expect from a patent owner, said that the prior art didn't include this clock controller, which that was the subject of this cross-examination that Danielle discussed earlier. It was pretty technical cross. It's not clear to me how much of that was going to connect with the jury, although what we're about to talk about, the VLSI's lawyer did a nice job of sort of 
tidying some of that up for the jury in the uh, closing arguments. So thank you, Mike and Danielle. This concludes part one of the podcast regarding the final day of the VLSI technology versus Intel trial about, you know, the final witnesses that were put on the stand. Um, Tune in for our podcast regarding the closing arguments.